And now you have a crisis. And all of a sudden, not just a crisis, but a crisis of people are going to die. It's huge uncertainty. And now it's the other way around. Now the policymakers turn to the experts and they say, we need you. We need you badly. It's not just what you know. But you're going to have to tell us what to do. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in the Rocket FM studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Time for episode 12 of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic. The podcast hosted by me and Mark Vandenbosch. And a little later on in the episode, we'll get to the interview with Arjen Boyne, Professor of Public Institutions and Governance at Leiden University. And speaking of experts, that's actually one of the topics we talk about. Experts and the advice experts give to political leaders in that dynamic is something that uh, Arian's going to drill down into. We're also going to talk about uh, learning and how countries uh, learn from one another or don't learn from one another. It's such a fluid situation. One country doing one thing, other countries doing one thing. Of course, Sweden doing something very different, getting a lot of attention these days, and uh, not least from uh, President of the United States, uh, Donald Trump, who uh, just yesterday, Mark, put out a tweet saying, uh, and I'll quote this tweet here, despite reports to the contrary, Sweden is paying heavily for its decision not to lock down. As of today, 2,462 people have died there, a much higher number than the neighboring countries of Norway, 207, Finland, 206, or Denmark, 443. The United States made the correct decision. But I guess what he means there is the correct decision to lock down. And today, May 1st, is the day that the federal government, I think, has given the green light for states to start opening up, even though some have already done a bit of a uh, sneak preview on uh, opening up states such as Georgia. But I think more are doing more as of today. So this is going to be uh, something to monitor. And uh, Mark, what do you say about uh, Trump and his uh, his outlooks on Sweden? Well, apparently he's been listening to our podcast because we talked about those exact numbers and these exact trends in our last podcast episode. President of the United States tuning in. Who knows? But uh, the other thing, Mark, too, is uh, he followed this up a little bit later in a press conference uh, with another uh, quote about Sweden. Uh, here it goes. The people in Sweden, they're not running around shaking hands and hugging and kissing each other. You know, they're using that as an example, but they've been hit hard. They've been hit hard. So he's a bit, right. I think he's a bit ambivalent about what Sweden is doing here. In some ways, I think he admires it. He admires the sort of the social cohesion that uh, is being trumpeted about Sweden, the trust in the government. Absolutely. But also in defense of Sweden, well, we talked about these different trends. We also need to be fair in our assessment. It's still very, very early. And while the numbers today show a large discrepancy, none of this really means anything until you look at it after more time has passed. And as far as the statements from the president of the United States. It's also interesting to see that just a couple of days earlier, he lauded Sweden for its response and for delegating responsibility to, to the individuals. And obviously, he's going a little bit back and forth, as are many people. And the other thing, too, I think of interest is we've been living this crisis now for what seems an eternity, but it's been about eight weeks, I guess, in Europe. Uh, you are still seeing from experts different types of conclusions on trends. And it is for politicians and government organizations that are in charge of making decisions to, to try to help mitigate this crisis. Quite confusing to read the signals. Even the scientists themselves are far from certain. In a recent example, there was an article about how vulnerable children were to this virus and whether or not they were vessels for transmission. And the conclusion, it was one of the big media outlets in the UK, wrote that children are unlikely to transmit the coronavirus. And, and this, of course, is important from the perspective of reopening schools in the UK and other parts of the world. And then just yesterday, 
a study from a famous virologist in Germany came to the exact opposite conclusion, that children are absolutely vessels of transmission. And these are just one of, of thousands of examples of mixed messages from the scientific community. It makes it very difficult, and our guest, I guess, later on in NZTV will discuss this, to really get a clear picture of what is the best way to go forward. I mean, science is certainly not a monolithic uh, entity, and I think that uh, the general public is learning that more and more as this crisis uh, proceeds. The age part, of course, is also a very interesting part. I read an article the other day from the Financial Times that went into the bit of the, the mystery as to why the infection and death rates in Africa have been so low. And, and one of the, the theories uh, put out there is the fact that the age of the population of Africa is extremely low. I think the median uh, is like 19, which might account for some part of this relatively very low uh, death toll so far in Africa. Well, that is one explanation, of course, but I think there are many parameters that go into this. And I sort of have a bias that the numbers that we're seeing from the developing world is inaccurate. If you look at the situation in the poor areas in Europe, you see extremely high death rates per million. We're talking about in excess of a thousand per million. And if you extrapolate those numbers to the developing country setting in places like India, which is 1.4 billion people living, or Nigeria, 210 million roughly, Bangladesh, highly dense populated area with, I think, over 170 million people. The official death rate in Bangladesh is 168. And there's no way that can be true. There's no way. Absolutely no way. And I'm not suggesting that this extrapolation of over a thousand per million will be accurate throughout the developing world. But I think there are some very terrible numbers hiding behind the surface. And we may never really find out. And part of the reason of that may be because there's an infrastructure that is unable to test properly or to do autopsies to find out the cause of death as one area. There may be also a deliberate attempt by governments in those areas to sort of downplay the impact of this, to prevent panic among the populations. And Hopefully, hopefully, as you say, it may be also that the average age of the population or other factors having an impact. But nonetheless, we haven't really focused very much on this in the Western press. Yeah, the question whether it's the dynamics of the disease itself, whether it's environmental factors or many other things, I think is a lot to be learned about this disease. Okay, Mark, any any other um, stories you want to get to? Any more 360s before we move over to Arian? Well, I think the uh, thing that you mentioned about May 1st being sort of a key date in the United States for reopening also applies to many parts of Europe where cautiously uh, Germany, uh, France, Spain, Italy are starting to loosen some of their regulations very, very gradually, very carefully. And we'll see uh, over the next two, three weeks what the impact will be. But the great concern throughout the world is this so-called second wave because we might grow a little complacent relax a little bit during the summer months. Yeah, the summer's going to be very interesting how people are going to approach the summer in terms of vacationing and everything else, but uh, especially here in Europe where vacation is sacred and not just a week or two, but four, six, eight weeks of vacation. I wonder if uh, the authorities and others will actually forego some of their vacation to uh, really uh, prepare for this uh, second wave, which most experts say will be coming in the autumn. Right, and if you equate that with the Spanish flu in 1918, the second wave was actually far worse. So we'll see what happens. But in terms of tourism in Greece, which is an economy very dependent on tourism. So they're discussing creating tourist corridors where tourists actually would perhaps be tested prior to leaving their origin countries before getting on the plane. There's definitely an aspiration to have a tourist season in the southern part of Europe. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. All right, time now to hear from Professor Arjen Boyne, who's a professor of public institutions and governance at Leiden University in the Netherlands. He's one of the leading crisis management experts in Europe. And uh, expertise is be one of the things that uh, Arjen gets into here. But in the first part of the interview with uh, Arian, we talk about the idea of learning, and time now for Arian Boyne, professor at Leiden University. Well, 
Uh, Eric, the interesting dimension of this crisis is that, you know, normally speaking, there's nothing to learn during a crisis. You know, who would you look at and what would you look at? If you have an unprecedented event, um, you're going to have to figure it out while you go. And we can call that, you know, improvisation or, or whatever you want to call it. Now, we have a, a unique circumstance here that you're somewhere in the line. So stuff has happened to other countries before it's happening to your country. So in the early phase, it's, you know, uh, what are we going to do? What kind of, what, what are we going to close everything down or not? Or, or you know, what are we closing down? Um, and you look, you can look at other countries. You can actually look at other countries that other countries have done, the different, the different strategies. So you can start learning right away. And now we're transitioning into the phase of, I guess, what's called the exit strategy. Um, it's a new set of challenges. You know, how, how do we get back to a new normal? We're not going to get back to the old normal. So we're going to get back to a new normal. Nobody knows what, what it's going to look like. And again, you know, some countries are ahead of you or, or they're at the same point in time, but they're doing things differently. So there's an unbelievable, at least a temptation, one would think, to learn from other countries. It's almost like a you know, controlled experiment. It isn't, of course, but it, it looks like it. And uh, that means that there's a temptation to learn. And when I say temptation, there's, of course, a temptation to pick a country that does what you want to do and then point out how well they do it or pick a country that is the opposite of what you want to do and then point out how bad they do it. So there's a there's a real risk of uh, learning, you know, in an instrumental way just for your own purposes. And I guess what we're trying to say is, you know, learning is important if you can do it, but there's there's a whole bunch of conditions that um, that you have to meet before it makes any sense uh, to learn the right lessons. You have to basically then systematize your learning, right? You can't just take it anecdotally or instrumentally. You have to really be very rigorous in sort of comparing and applying some of these lessons that other countries are learning, both positive and negative, and then adapting them to your local circumstances. Is that, is that how you'd frame it? I think that's excellent and because, you know, the, the, the virus might be the same, but the effect of the virus depends on many things, you know, social, cultural, you know, all the, the measure, the impact of earlier measures, the, the health, the healthcare capacity that you have in your country. So it's, it's very hard to uh, relate a certain strategy or a certain effort in a country to the, uh, the effectiveness that you're seeking. So you can't say, oh, you know, look at the number of uh, dead people in that country. It's much lower than in that country. But there might be all sorts of other variables that are operating on that end result. That's why you got to control for all these factors. So it's really what we teach our students, you know, how to do comparative research. you got to control for all all these factors. And um, I'm not so sure that policymakers, they may have forgotten those lessons. So I think it's important that we remind them of those lessons that you can't blindly import. Um, strategies that seem to work in one country that kind of resembles your country uh, because it might actually have unintended consequences, might not work in your country, might have uh, bad effects in your country. Now, perhaps you can give us some examples, Arian, about some of these um, these aspects of this particular crisis of the uh, COVID nineteen crisis that um, that perhaps could be learned. What sort of lessons or what specific aspects of this crisis could be taken from one context to another? Uh, given these these certain um, uh, cultural adaptations that would be necessary along the way? Well, one of the lessons that, that are interesting to study is, for instance, so if you take the outliers, the outliers are, I think, always the most interesting. So, the, you know, you have the outliers like Italy and, and Spain where they do super complete lockdown. So this is, you know, how a somebody from 
1600 would advise you to do it. You know, nobody gets out on the street, uh, you know, kill the dogs and uh, make sure that nothing moves and then it'll go away after 40 days. Now, interestingly enough, in those models, if you would be tempted to follow those models, it turns out that the uh, the number of uh, infected people just, you know, goes down so slowly that, you know, the, the, you would have to wonder, there's something wrong with the logic almost. You know, why is this going so slowly? I mean, if you have a complete lockdown. Now, you look at the other end, you know, another outlier is Sweden. So Sweden, you know, if, if you look at what they're not doing, then you would expect, based on, on uh, all this common knowledge, that... Um, that Sweden must be overrun. You know, people might be probably dying in the street is what you would expect. And that's obviously not happening. So, so the lesson, what kind of lessons can we learn from there? Well, maybe, maybe it has something to do with if you start studying those cases with the, uh, the way that, you know, uh, in Sweden, the trust relation has often been mentioned that, you know, how people trust in the authorities. Uh, I would turn that around and I would say something that appears to be happening in Sweden is that the experts actually trust the people. So they they say you know really if you stay away from each other be smart you know don't don't shake hands don't do this and that you can pretty much do whatever you're doing and and we're going to limit this epidemic uh, that means you trust the people to to be smart um, in in Holland for instance we're not that far we have much more uh, paternalistic attitude you know we're telling you exactly what to do. And, but I'm, I'm telling you, if you're not doing this, it's going to be, it's going to be a long while and, and I might have to punish you and, 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 uh, tighten, tighten the screws. So it's much more, you know, the headmaster and the, and the, and the students in the class. So the, the, if you look smartly at other models and they pick up principles that may help to explain how you're doing it, uh, and also may offer suggestions for adaptation in your particular model. Now, in the end, I think the principle is simple. You know, you don't want people to touch each other so the virus can jump from one person to the other. I mean, it's it's almost that simple or, or come very close and, and uh, especially not vulnerable people. So, but there's so many ways to accomplish that. They're the learning. The other, the, the other learning that kind of fits with that is then the, the use of facial masks. You know, many countries use those. Some countries think it's unnecessary. I find that fascinating because the underlying research must be the same. You know, it's not like scientific research is different for Sweden or Holland or China. So there's, there's something going on there in terms of either learning or maybe even refusing to learn. I don't know what it is, but there is, um, there is a, a clear opportunity to learn. And uh, there you see that we're not, they're not trying to learn that. And, uh, I find that so, so there, there's, there's many dimensions to this question. And it just kind of shows you that, um, it's it maybe not so easy as it looks. I mean, leaders are under enormous pressure to learn, I guess, or to perhaps, let's say, mimic what other countries, what other successful countries are doing. But, um, how do they either decide to do so or to resist doing so? What I think is happening is that leaders make an initial choice. The, the kind of approach that they're embracing. So, you know, we're going to lock down. Let's say we're going to lock down. And you may have learned that because you saw that China did that and then you saw Italy do it and you saw Spain do it and, and you figure, you know, these are smart people there. If they're going to sacrifice their economy to protect people, they must know what they're doing. So you do it. So you have to explain this to your population. And um, once you go down that road, it's really hard to just turn midway and say, you know what? 
um, lockdown, you know, I changed my mind. I, I looked at Sweden and I think it's not necessary. That would undermine leadership. So it, it's um, tempting as it may be, that's just not going to happen. I mean, it's, they're invested in this in this heroic kind of uh, principled approach to the crisis. So that makes it very, very hard to uh, escape from your initial decision. So you don't get, there's, there's really no incentive to learn anything there. You'll get another chance at the exit strategy. Now, you can contrast that. You can say, well, leaders might have a more pragmatic model where they say, look, there's, there's deep uncertainty here. I don't think anybody knows what they're doing. So why don't we try something, see if it works. Now, if it works, we're going to go down that road. But if it doesn't work, then we're going to look again. And then other countries, meanwhile, might, might have found a better strategy, and we may switch. That you know seems like a much more reasonable approach to a problem that you don't understand because you don't have any information about that problem. But it's, it's a hard sell because as a leader, you're saying, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to muck around for a bit and that's anybody's guess. And uh, let's see what happens. That sounds like you're experimenting. Now, of course, people with the lockdown thing, they're experimenting as well. They have no idea, but at least it sounds good. So the model that will give rise to learning is also the model that most leaders are um, not likely to pick. And that I think explains the limited attention that many leaders have for the experiences of other countries. So there's a certain amount of prestige involved and in, in path dependency as well when it comes to these these paths that uh, that are chosen early on in a crisis. I and mean, one that um, that comes to mind where there was a, a quite a dramatic reversal was in uh, the United Kingdom, where at first they were pretty much openly embracing the herd immunity strategy, right, and then they made a very sudden um, turnabout and went to the lockdown approach. Uh, do you think that was the right way to, to actually to be able to, as a leader? Was that a, was that a profile in courage, or does that just make it seem like, as you say, they're just mucking around, not knowing what they're doing? Well, the initial approach, you know, was you know this is kind of like a flu and, and herd immunity and this and the other. And uh, what happened was that the Imperial College report came out and uh, predicted it's like, okay, if you're going to go down this road, you're going to have you know an X number of deaths. You know, like half a million people are going to die. And that was the first time that experts came out and advised the prime ministers, you know, this is a, this is not a, this is not a very smart way of going about it. People are going to die. And I think that scared, that scared the policymakers, both in, not only in the UK, but also in the United States. That report played a, a big role in turning things around in those countries. Now that doesn't mean that, that lockdown was the alternative. Lockdown is just one extreme model. Is one extreme approach. I mean, there's, there's, so if you take the Swedish approach as the, let's say the most lenient approach, but it's still based on the idea that you want to limit social context for a certain group of people. Uh, and you take the total lockdown as the most extreme form where nobody's going to be in touch with anybody. And then there's a whole range of models that you could put in between that vary on certain dimensions. So the, what happened in the UK from all to nothing is is quite spectacular, but um, that's not based on learning. I think that's, that was more based on fear. And uh, the idea that like, if that's going to happen, we're really screwed. And also combined with the idea, we lost a lot of time. So by not doing anything for a couple of weeks. So this is it's almost making up the lost time. So, so my guess is, of course, I wasn't there, but my guess is that's how it played out in that decision-making arena. 
We're going to get to that. I think it's actually a very interesting aspect of this discussion that we want to get deeper into is this idea of expertise and how um, medical experts or, or other kinds of experts influence the decisions made by political leaders. And I think that's uh, one of the aspects of this uh, Imperial College report that um, had a dramatic effect on, on British policy towards this pandemic. But uh, before we get to that uh, part of the interview, I want to talk, Arian, about some of the, um, perhaps some of the uh, the principles of learning that uh, that you could actually sort of just sum up to give an, an idea of what, uh, if a decision maker wanted to learn, whether during this pandemic or a future pandemic or other crises, what, what would you advise? What uh, sort of takeaways would you have from your research on this? They should treat it as a, almost like a research project. So you should treat this as a comparative research project. Social scientists can point out how you do that. That means you have to have some sort of underlying theory that predicts the uh, or hypothesizes the effect of a certain measure or a set of measures. And then you go about and then uh, you define how that causal relation will work. And you define the conditions and you set the conditions for comparative research. And you have typically scientists perform that uh, exercise. That is really, if you want to do it right, that is the only way. And so the idea that you go visit a country or talk to a few people there and say, hey, how are you doing it? And it looks like you're doing it right. Let's, we should also do that. That is not that is not learning. It's really no rocket science that we're asking. But unfortunately, I, I fear that it's not being approached that way because it's mostly medical people looking at the medical dimension of, of these measures. And I'm not so sure if they can take into account all the the social and legal and political and cultural differences that certainly have an impact on the way these measures work out in practice. So you're making a case for social science expertise as being part of the equation for dealing with a major crisis like this? For sure. All right, Arian, let's talk deeper now about the uh, the more high-profile experts that are getting much of the attention in this pandemic. They've really become, in some ways, the rock stars of uh, 2020, and that is the the state uh, epidemiologists in different countries, the, the top medical experts that uh, have the ear of the prime ministers and presidents. What, um, from your perspective, observing this, this is a, this is a field that you've done research on uh, long prior to this pandemic. Uh, what's your observation so far and how this is being conducted in different contexts? Well, it's the rise of the expert, and... Um and, and think about it, you know, in any sort of normal complex policy problem, you would hope that the experts have a say in pointing out, you know, how, how can we resolve this? At what cost? You know, what was the best measure? And and experts never come to the table. You know, the policymakers and politicians, they they don't read those journals. They don't they don't hardly talk to those experts. And uh, so there, there's a huge divide in normal life between people who really know something and then people who make decisions. You know, we have all sorts of words for that and uh, bewail the, uh, you know, the, the existence of the gap between the, between the experts and the policymakers. And now we have a crisis. And all of a sudden, not just a crisis, but a crisis of people are going to die. It's huge uncertainty. And, and now it's the other way around. Now the policymakers turn to the experts and they say, we need you and we need you badly. It's not just what you know. I mean, you're going to have to tell us what to do. And this, of course, is, um, as we know, you know, experts may know a lot. But that doesn't mean they can prescribe. That doesn't mean they can offer prescriptions for stuff that works. I mean, that, there's, that's a, And that also doesn't mean they can predict. But that's precisely what the policymakers want to know. So they start pressing. Like, they want predictions. They want to know exactly if we do this, what will happen at what cost? And, of course, experts can help you think about that, but they, they can't look into the future. They don't know this because it's unique circumstances. 
So the relations is turned turns on its head, and it gives a lot of room for entrepreneurial experts who are convinced that they know and that they that they can offer advice that's going to be effective. Now we should remember that all these experts in the world in this sort of domain virologists and, and epidemiologists and, you know, uh, pandemic flu. That's a little, that's, that's, a, that's a quite, it's a select group. It's a select tribe. And they, and, and it's not very big. It's not the biggest medical community in the world. And they produce research that is accessible to everybody. So there's a common knowledge. So you, you, you would almost wonder like, how is it possible that from the common knowledge that is, um, is being sanctioned, if you will, by the World Health Organization. You know, they, they, they say, oh, this is good research, you know, and they bring experts together and they write these reports and, uh, they write the, the, the guidelines. And, and if you just read the guidelines, they're all the same, right? They don't make a, a huge difference for whether you're in America, Sweden, or Australia. And so the variety in, in understanding these guidelines and interpreting these guidelines and formulating the uh, you know what we do um, that variety can only be explained in my view for for a large part explained by what experts are suggesting to the policymakers unless and in some cases that is true policymakers regard the uh, the advice of experts but I'm leaving those people outside of the equation for a second and I find that hugely interesting so take take the uh, the question of closing schools I mean there is a there is a Clear, you know, if you read the WHO um, advice guidelines or whatever, you know, they're not big on closing schools. They don't really see the, you know, only under the some circumstances, maybe. They don't even want to close events. There's so all sorts of measures that we're seeing now are not in the guidebooks. You could say, you could make a point that what Sweden is doing is the closest to the guidebooks that I see. Now, again, I see then that experts say this in, in the early phase. Oh, we, you know, we don't have to close the schools. We don't have to close the schools. Then there's political pressure. They close the schools. And then those same experts, you know, five weeks down the road say, we should not open the schools now. Even though there's no evidence whatsoever that closing the schools contributed to, uh, to the outcome or the effect of the, uh, of the pandemic, which they readily agree. Then all of a sudden they, they say, you know, we need evidence before we can decide to open the school. The same experts. So that means to me, in my mind, that elevating experts to a level uh, very close to power may not always be a good idea. Uh, you know, some of those experts might actually finally, you know, come in that position where they are heard, which is never happens, you know, never happens in normal times. And uh, that just may be just a little too tempting is my observation. That is fascinating. And this uh, this problem with evidence, that seems to be especially uh, relevant in, in times of crisis, right? Because if you need evidence to make a decision, well, evidence takes time, right? And especially the way that experts tend to vet evidence is through peer review processes and such. How do you turn evidence into action when there is very little time to do so? Well, there is no evidence. I mean, that may, actually makes it a lot easier. <laughs> I mean, if you don't have evidence, you can make up anything. Uh, we, we just don't have any evidence. So all, all these experts can do. So whether it's about facial masks, whether it's about closing the schools, closing universities, closing bars, is fall back 
on existing evidence that was already there. Now, if you read, I mean, nobody reads that stuff, but if you read the articles and stuff, they will all say is the evidence that we have, what we know is very, very limited and essentially based on anecdotal insights from the 1918 pandemic. Now, if you, if you start thinking about that for a second, that means, you know, we are operating in 2020, 100 years down the road on the knowledge of people who had no idea of all sorts of research methodologies or evidence-based, you know, how we would do it today, on um, what they just happened to write up. And uh, we have no idea of, of their expertise, how good they were, but that's what we're operating on. So we're operating on a flight manual, you know, found on the beach in North Carolina for the first airplane, and that's where we're running our, our you know, our, the newest airplanes on. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's astounding almost. So the idea is like, what do you actually know as an expert? That question, of course, nobody nobody ever asked that question because they're experts. I mean, that's the, that's the fantastic. If you wear that coat of you know expertise, you never get that question. But it's a fascinating question. What I mean, what makes you so sure about this? I would like to know. Can you? Does anybody ever ask? Can you cite me that article where you know where you're basing this fantastic insight on? That the schools can should not open today, but in ten days. Not you know not May first, but May eleventh, or that we should only um, have kids play contact sports under the age of twelve, not fourteen, not sixteen, not eighteen. Is it, wh- why are we closing universities? And you know why is that really? But not the bars. What in with what is that based on? And. I, you know, I'm going to tell you, I don't think that article exists. Now, that means that, you know, what we're, we're, we're almost, you know, they become, um, almost sort of priests of science. And, you know, we, we hope that they have, that they have some sort of, uh, deity like insight that, that we as normal mortals don't have. And then we just put our fate in the hands of the experts. And, um, that's, I mean, I know, I mean I, you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but the, uh, it's really kind of worrying in a sense. Well, of course, also experts um, do disagree with each other. One expert might have a very different conclusion than another expert. Just it happens that one is in a certain position uh, as a government advisor, or another one might be stashed away at some university. I mean, how, how are those types of uh, expert disagreements, how are those resolved in, in, the, uh, in the corridors of power? Well, they're resolved that, you know, there's, there's various ways, but two factors at least play a role. First of all, we have the, the trusted advisor. So, you know, the, it's not, you know, it's not like you're a prime minister or president. You're going to have an open competition with best expert and then talk to all the experts and say, I think you're the best expert. I'm going to listen to you. Uh, there, we don't have time for that stuff. So we take the, the person that you've seen before or you know, I saw that guy the first time or the woman the first time. She made a good impression on me. I'm going to go with her. And then, and, and then you kind of crowd out all the other alternative noises. You don't have time for that. You don't want to listen to all that. We're in a crisis. And you know that there's always another expert and some jealous person there in that building that, you know, they're going to say something else. So it's easy to kind of ignore that. Um, the second fact is, you know, you take the experts that are in the government building. You know, literally in the building that you kind of figure if they're in that building, they're probably the best experts. Doesn't have to be true at all. They might be in the university 
you know, uh, in another country. Who knows? I mean, you don't know, but you have that, that the, uh, the, the Royal Academy of who, who knows what, uh, or the, or the CDC or whatever the center is called. So you just take that person. Person may have not done research for 20 years. They, I mean, they're directors. They run, they might not have the best researchers. Those might be in universities, not in those institutes. We don't know. I'm not saying that's true, but how do we know? Um, normally speaking, you vet all that stuff before a crisis. So you say, when we ever get in a crisis, we'll have these people. But very few governments do that. Uh, the UK does that with their, with their SAGE, um, group where they vet all kinds of, uh, academics before the crisis. Um, of course, they ran into all sorts of controversy as well. And that was mostly because politicians refused to listen to them in the first place. But where we um, see politicians relying solely on a few trusted people and even bring them on the stage, so really elevating them to that rock star status that you mentioned, um, that is a, a weird symbiose of, of uh, political decision-making and um, not-so-sure expertise where you, know, you, you almost have to wonder if it's not very convenient to have a person close to you that can uh, bless your decision-making with, with uh, the accommodating advice. Well, it also becomes an accountability issue as well, right? Well, in the end, you know, the politicians are accountable, for sure. I mean, purely accountable. But in the blaming game, you know, I've heard our prime minister say so many times, we're following the advice of the experts. And it's like, okay, you're following the advice of the, but, but wait a minute, that's not your job. Your job is to take advice from experts and you make the decision. You're, you know, it's not your job to follow the advice of the experts. But, you know, people think that is a natural way of operating. But if I would say, Mr. Prime Minister, when this crisis is over, and I'm going to tell you something, I have solid research. I mean, really solid research. You're not going to believe this, but if you smoke cigarettes, you're going to get cancer. I mean, really, I can't, you find an expert who's going to disagree with that. Are you going to follow their advice when they say that we should outlaw cigarettes? Well, that ain't going to happen. So that shows you how flexible politicians can be with regard to expertise. And it also shows you that, you know, they will take expertise that fits with the position they're looking for. I mean, what would you say is the proper balance in that case? You're basically questioning the um, reliance and the fallback onto expertise and letting experts basically make decisions. And are you implying that the politicians should use less expertise or should they trust their own instincts more? What's the sort of proper balance between politicians and uh, experts in terms of, in terms of what decisions are made? Well, politicians or, you know, decision makers, let's call them decision makers because it could also be policy makers. In the ideal world, they would be trained to understand how an expert thinks and to question an expert. So if you are, you know, you may just ask an expert, so, okay, this sounds, um, okay, I understand what you're saying. So tell me what you're basing this off. So how sure are you about this? You know, what, what are we talking about? 10%, 50%, 70%, you know, uh, have you seen this before? But, I mean, you have to probe the kind of advice you're getting. And if you're saying beforehand, you know, I'm following the advice, you're, you're giving a, a sort of carte blanche to experts to, to come up with whatever, whatever they, you know, they, they might even be convinced that they're coming up with the right stuff. But as you just pointed out, 
experts disagreed, and they're all working with the basic, the same basic knowledge. So apparently, people who spend 30, 40 years on this can have different insights. Well, I would want to know, you know, because these are consequential decisions. These, I mean, these are not just little things that we can correct next year or whatever. I mean, this is people die because of these decisions. They live or die. And, um, and you don't have to make that decision within 30 minutes. I mean, you actually have time to probe this, ask some questions. And, um, of course, I don't know if they're doing that. There might, leaders might be, you know, having, shooting the breeze with these experts all day long and together arriving at, at, the, at their insights. You know, who knows? Um, but you know, what we noticed in many countries that there's not a whole lot of transparency with regard to this, this whole, um, uh, advice trajectory. You know, so it's not always clear who makes the models, what goes into these models, you know, based on what that you, you won't see much of that. And, um, again, that, that is, um, I'm, I don't even care about accountability. I, I'm just, I, I care about the wisdom of taking, you know, following advice from experts and just face value kind of, uh, reflects. I, I, I would really, you know, if we have smart leaders and we have a smart policymakers, advisors, so the the advice and the experts shouldn't directly go to the leader, but should be filtered through the policymaking machine. And I guess that, that's that's what I would advise. All right, Professor Arian Boeing, thanks you very much for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you, Eric.